The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. With guest Michelle LaRue Bustamante, recorded live Friday, June 3rd, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering hands-on VBNet and ASPNet classes remotely online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for ASPNet development online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, a man who really has to take a whizzy, Carl Franklin. That's true. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another stellar edition of Don Rocks, as Jeff just said so eloquently after nine takes. But that's another story. I'm here in New London, Connecticut, with my partner in crime, Richard Campbell, who is here in Connecticut, sitting right across the uh, the, the booth from me. How are you, Richard? I'm real good. We're looking through at each other through that bulletproof plated glass, you know, <laughs> that we have here in our multi-million dollar studio facility at the top of the Duart building in New London. Multi-dozen dollar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, what, wow, what a what a cool uh, week we have in store for us at TechEd. It's going to be crazy. Not only are we, uh, we're flying down there tonight, and uh, geez, you know, there's an event going on every night until we're leaving. And the big event for us, of course, is .NET Rocks Live on Wednesday. Lunchtime. Lunchtime. And last time we checked, we had 1,100 people registered for that show. It's going to be a busy room. And we're interviewing the uh, Team System guys. The Team System team. Yeah. So it should be, should be loads of fun. I can't wait. TechEd's always fun. Yeah. It's an it's 11,000-person geek love fest. What car can you ask for? And our guest, Michelle LaRue-Bustamante, was supposed to be here, but something came up that uh, caused her to have to go back home uh, a little bit early. Otherwise, uh, we would have all been going to TechEd together, but uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Well, Richard, we had a couple of emails this uh, week, and we actually had quite a few, but there were two of them that stand out because they're sort of along the same lines. One of them is complaining about uh, me, apparently, going on and on about how VBNet is so great. And the other one is uh, related to that. Well, let me read the first one, which is sort of a flame, and... uh, 
And it's cool. I actually appreciate the flame. We don't get enough flames here. You know, we're always getting praise. We should get more flames. So if you're a listener and uh, you haven't, you know, sent us an email in a while, just flame us, okay? Absolutely. Uh, This is from Chris Bransma, and he says, enough already, please. Enough with the VB is so great, diatribes. We've heard it enough times already. In fact, it has gotten so bad from you, I mean you, Carl, that I can almost speak it point by point with you. Goes like this. VB developers get no respect. VB can do everything C-sharp can do. VB is so cool now. VB's, VB6 sucked and everyone should be using VBNet anyway. Except for those developers who only know VB6 and never wanted to be developers in the first place. VB is so cool now. Good Lord, people, please stop blathering the blatantly obvious and maybe we can have a real debate. So far, we've made it to VB can do everything C-sharp can do. Yes, we know that already. Sorry, call, call me a heretic, but that is not a compelling reason for me to switch to C-sharp, uh, from C-sharp to VBNet. Heck, that isn't even a compelling argument for me to switch from COBOL, C-O-B-A-L, COBOL. <laughs> That's a little-known language. Uh, I don't think many people know about COBOL. I remember my father stopping the car for the sole purpose of beating the living tar out of me and my sister for the same intellectually stimulating arguments. You know the ones. They sounded like this. R2, M0, R2, give me some stats, some multiple arguments. Give me something to sink my teeth into. Otherwise, shut up. Frankly, I don't care what .NET language you use. In the grand scheme of things, what language you use is the most piddly thing you can talk about to a fellow .NET developer. Wake up and smell the framework. Remember, kids, this is why we are here in the first place. Work on your sorry ego with a therapist. Sincerely, a former C++ developer, gone VB, gone Delphi, and now to C Sharp. Christopher Bradsma, Diamond B Software. Who you can uh, find at www.chrisbrandsma.com. Chris, thanks for that flame. Really like that. That was great. Uh, and, you know, I, I did respond um, to him personally by saying, you know, hey, I'm not getting, I'm not trying to get you to switch. Uh, apparently you've, you know, had four languages now already, you know enough about switching. So, you know, who am I to tell you what to use? Use C-sharp. Love it. Great. Not telling you. And then we got another email, and this one came from Carl Weiss in Irving, Texas. The uh, subject of this is DNR made me switch from C-sharp to VB.net. <laughs> <laughs> Coincidentally. Yeah. And they came within a day of each other. First of all, let me say that I love the show and I listen to it religiously. Now the point of my email. I've been programming in C-sharp for about two years now and loved it. Then after listening to a few of your shows on VBNet, I decided to check it out. I had programmed in VB5 and 6, but not VBNet. After programming in VBNet for a little over a week, I won't use C-sharp unless a job requires me to. I mean, you can't get more productive than VBNet, and no matter what all those people say about C-sharp being faster or superior to VBNet, they are just full of shit. VBNet is a first-class citizen in the .NET world and here to stay. So if anyone out there is trying to decide whether to learn C-sharp or VBNet, I would ask them, do you want to learn to write powerful software fast, or do you want to spend a long time learning a language that makes it a bit slower productivity-wise to get your powerful software done and out the door? For me and millions of others, it's a no-brainer. VBNet is where I want to be. Anyways, keep on rocking DNR. And uh, you heard it not from my lips, but from the lips of uh, Carl Weiss. 
Maybe it was Carl Weiss he was actually talking about. <laughs> saying that stuff. So, you know, life goes on. Well, in the end, it's all IL, right? Doesn't really matter what language you started with. Well, you know, if you if you if you're consi- if you could do either and you're considering which to do, that's a different story, I think. You know, if you're but if you're I think the real problem is the managers that uh, have a team of VB people and they have some idea that you know that they can't write real software in VBnet. So well, and there to- is some historical merit to this because when Microsoft guys were building the first samples, they wrote them in C sharp because hey, they're, they're most, C programmers. They're C programmers. That's where they started. That's with. right. But that I think has largely gone away as well. The one other angle I might throw into this is that uh, I've talked to groups who are migrating from VB six and made the case for C sharp because it was different enough from VB yes. that you were very clear that you were moving to a new language. Right. And that's totally cool. We, it takes all kinds. So let's just go ahead and introduce our guest. Michelle LaRue-Bustamante is Principal Software Architect of iDesign Incorporated, a Microsoft Regional Director for San Diego, Microsoft MVP for XML Web Services, and BEA Technical Director. She has over a decade of development experience developing applications with VB, C++, Java, C Sharp, and VBNet, and working with related technologies such as ATL, MFC, and COM. At iDesign, Michelle provides training, mentoring, and high-end architecture consulting services, focusing on web services, scalable and secure architecture design for .NET, and interoperability. She is a member of the International .NET Speakers Association, INETA, a frequent conference presenter, conference chair for SD's web services and .NET tracks, and is frequently published in several major technology journals. Michelle is also a program advisor for UCSD Extension, and is the .NET expert for searchwebservices.com. Reach her at mlb at idesign.net or visit www.idesign.net and her blog at www.dasblonde.net. Will you welcome Michelle LaRue-Bustamante again on .NET Rocks. How are you? Hi, Carl. How are you? Doing fine. I love that picture of you. You do, do you? It's a fabulous photo. It's a Better great than all picture. All those glam shots that are littered all over the place from like 1996 or something. Right. <laughs> it shows the you know that you're a pensive, thoughtful, pensive, right, contemplative, brilliant person, person. Right. Right. Exactly. I was trying to capture that. I was trying to capture that. What were you contemplating at that moment? The Chivas or the <laughs> yeah, Crown Royal? Yeah, I think Royal. it was a French Bordeaux, <laughs> 1997. Yes. A great year. And you just got back from the Netherlands with uh, my friend Richard here. That's right. Yep. We were there, uh, SDC, Software Developer Conference, every year for the last four years. I've been going. Richard's been going longer, I think. Yeah, I think I was my seventh year now. They're yeah. such a great bunch of people. It's a great time. Apparently, it's a user group that has uh, pretty steep fees as far as user groups go, but you get a lot of benefits, such as this free conference, right? Yeah. Well, they... they User groups, I think, in Europe are taken a lot more seriously than they are in North America. I mean, in North America, they're very much a, a geek club. Pizza or, gathering. Yeah, it's a chance to eat you know, pizza and, and soda and, and hear about technology. But in, in Europe, they, uh, the, the fees are pretty steep. But they have their own magazine, which they publish, uh, I think, every other month. And then they have several conferences. And this is the big one where they bring in North American speakers. And it's been going on for years. They're an impressive organization, all not-for-profit. Yeah. And all the money goes back to the members in the end. Right. Yeah, but everybody wants things for free in America. That's true. You know that, right? Yep, that's true. What um, Mark Miller said something to you. He was talking about when we recorded Mondays last night. He said uh, 
that you told him he had said it was the meanest thing anybody had ever said to to somebody? What did, what did he say? Oh, you don't really want me to do that, do you? <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Oh sure. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know what? It was one of those moments, and I, I hope I don't hate myself for sharing the story, but. We're, we're in the speaker room, and you know how Mark Miller is. I mean, he's just, like, bouncing off walls all the time. He's insane. Right? He, he's, he's hilarious. He's and I, I love the guy. He's great. But we were having a serious conversation about, you know, people and professions and reading blogs and research. And, you know, I basically kind of interjected that, you know, uh, in my husband's profession, he's a he's a doctor that he you know gathers magazines and does all kinds of uh, you know reading in his spare time. But he has a different industry than us. And I I elaborated a bit. And while I was talking, he looks at me and he says, Michelle, you know, I don't know if it's your uh, if it's your your voice right now or if it's the story you're telling, but I want to fall asleep. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe you said that out loud. I think that's what I said to him. Did you just say that out loud? <laughs> funny, I say that about Mark Miller a lot. Did he actually say that out loud? It was actually quite funny, but at the same time, I just couldn't believe that where that came from. You know, it was like we just had a serious conversation for two seconds. He can't even take it. No, that's, that's past him right there. I mean, if it, if it's not a joke, it's like move on, let's go. Right? Yeah. He needs Ritalin. I'm telling yeah. you, he's ADD boy. He needs a Ritalin drip. Is yeah. what he needs. And he, and he is hilarious. But uh, anyway, yeah. 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 Well, that's just like Miller. So I I pretty much gave him uh, a load of uh, a little uh, what for? Yeah, I gave him some shit all the way back for <laughs> the rest of the conference. And after a while, you know, he really couldn't take it. He said, you know, Michelle, I can dish it, but I can't take it. So you got to stop now. <laughs> so, it was kind of nice to see him begging for mercy, actually. Yeah. Like those little sad eyes he actually ended up showing, you know. Well, Richard was telling me about the presentation you made there, which I really want to talk about because you are One. you're all about interop. And you had actually done an, an incredible demo that included, you know, a real interop scenario right there on the, on the stage with multiple machines and, and whatnot. Tell us about that, because that really sounded awesome. Okay, now, I think we're talking about a different conference, because I didn't do the multiple machines here. Yes. Yeah, but, um, okay. yes, that's been something, actually, we've done in many locations. Um, it's like a road show or something that you're doing? Well, okay, so... Let me give you the history of my interop anyway, because it, it actually started, and this is actually a really fun story from TechEd last year. I wanted to do something where we brought together, because I have a J2 EE background to some extent, not not like a leader in the industry type, but right. enough to be dangerous. And I um, I have experience with BEA, and I had met some people that you know do Java access and so on. So we pulled together remotely, completely human interop here. People who'd never met before. I had Benjamin Mitchell in London and John Bristow in uh, Calgary, and I was here in San Diego. I had another guy here in San Diego doing BEA. I had another guy in San Francisco in BEA, and I had another uh, guy in Atlanta doing AXIS, and he was actually the one that didn't come to the conference but totally saved the day because, you know, he just knew so much about the standards. And what we were trying to do is put together a, a SAML token issue scenario. What's that? Yeah, um, what is that? So so the idea being that with, with web services security today, a lot of the discussion is around key management. It's the big problem that we have to try and solve. And, right. You know, um, made into a shorter uh, summary, the idea is that you can have a conversation between two points with a token that 
that maybe expires after a certain amount of time, but that token can also carry with it claims that describe what your role is in the organization that you're communicating with, possibly. It doesn't have to be that deep, but it could be, right? So. Mm -hmm. This SAML token is something that no platforms had implemented yet, um, except for uh, uh, Ping Identity Corporation, um, I think by Source ID. They, they had a, an implementation, but nothing that we could get working at that time. It was sort of still in play. And we got a, a we created a web service that issued the token, and we had to actually had to write an XML token from scratch. So Benjamin Mitchell mm. did a lot of the legwork on that while I was coordinating communication with Axis, and Chris Haddad was working with me on that. And and when it came time to get it all working together, everybody was sending me their stuff, and I was pulling it together on one machine, making sure we had endpoints we could all hit remotely and, and test. Wow. And then when Benjamin arrived, it was actually the night before the conference, and what it was is a one four-hour event the day before Tech Ed started that mm -hmm. I had hosted at UCSD Extension, mm -hmm. and uh, Microsoft, you know, co-sponsored it. And we 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 were waiting for Benjamin at the airport, but we couldn't lose any time because we were having trouble getting things working through the router. So we brought the router and all our machines to the airport, and we sat in a lo in a row, myself, Anant, and. Um, and uh, Heinrich. <laughs> and we hooked our machines together. I'm sitting in the middle of these two guys with a, a hub router at my feet, and uh, and we're totally trying to get you know the communications working between our machines. And Benjamin gets off the plane. It was late. It was delayed. So we're like, we can't just wait here. We've got to at least do work while we wait for him. So we're sitting there, uh, you know, jamming out functionality. And he gets off the plane and he beelines for us and takes a picture because he says, okay, oh, I yeah. knew it had to be you. You know. He, <laughs> How many people, people were walking by looking at us like, what the hell are you doing? Right. Are you going to like blow up the building or what? Right. That's right. <laughs> so it's quite Just funny. trying to change he, my reservation. <laughs> I think he posted his, uh, his, uh, the picture on his blog way back. So that goes back actually over a year ago. And yeah, it was last that was year. sort of the start of this group that um, we started working together called Interop Warriors. And, you know, <laughs> we're actually not very good bloggers because we're all too busy. But what mm. we do do is we get together and, and make some interop stories work for various events and right. we've done about three or four or five events now let's get back to this token that you were uh creating with xml and if if nobody had implemented it where did the protocol come from for this is this sort of was it just sort of floating around academia no actually it is an oasis standard so okay uh, it had already been ratified as a standard, but the flow around it in terms of issuing tokens and receiving tokens um, was, that, that is currently ratified is actually browser-based. So it's more like a portal, okay. single sign-on type uh, uh, infrastructure. But now there's actually a SAML token profile for WS Security. So, so that means that the messaging around WS Security, which is the overarching standard around all security and web services, um, fits in with passing a SAML token as well. Now, what is um, the the SAML SAML token? S A M L is a basically it, it deals with the issue of keys, is what you said, well, right? It, it is a token, actually. It's a key. It it, it itself does not resolve key management issues. Okay. What it does on its own is represent um, an entity. A unique identifier. Some assertions about the caller, possibly some role-based information about what they're allowed to do, and mm. this can vary by implementation. So what happens is the destination web service requires certain claims be passed to it. 
so that would be part of its policy, right? Okay. And the policy would say, I need a SAML token that has to include a claim of, you know, your social security number and this and that and the other thing. Oh, okay. And so those claims then have to be satisfied with the token that's sure. passed. And the token has to follow the SAML format because the policy said so. So then what happens is, you know, the caller of the web service has to somehow get a SAML token. Well, where do they get that, right? Am I going to, like, knit one? Yeah. Uh, probably not, <laughs> right? So so I need to, um, uh, you know probably programmatically make a call to a token issuer, which might actually reside at the same destination as the web service that is waiting for my call. Um, so the ultimate receiver might host their own token issuer, and that's more likely today, although later it might be third party. Mm. Okay. And that token gets issued real time with an expiry date, and then that XML gets passed between our communications and is used to sign messages and so forth so that we know that it's not tampered with, and, and then it carries the claims. So that that implies that I have a trust relationship as the caller with the web service I'm calling, but also that the web service I'm calling has a trust relationship with the token issuer and somehow has made it possible for me to previously enroll and, and identify myself so that my claims are known, right? What is my yeah. role in the system? Am I an admin or something else? Right. So it's a very flexible XML standard. I mean, I couldn't even list for you all the possibilities of what it can do, but... A quick um, Google search uh, yields security assertions markup language. Yeah, I know this, right? I just can never remember it when asked. Oh, that's okay. That. I'd, never, I'd never heard of it before, so that's... Too many acronyms. <laughs> I, I know, I know. So, WS chaos. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> The whole, you're you're absolutely right when you, as far as I'm as far as I know, when you said that you know you the management that, wait of. Wait a minute. What did you say? You're absolutely right. Oh, you're absolutely. You're right. absolutely I right. Love that. that sounds so cool. Thank you. You're make, welcome. We got to make okay, a sound bite of that. <laughs> all right. Sure. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I'm wrong. You're right. We're but we're all wrong. You're right. How's that? Okay. Go. Cool. Okay. Uh, you're absolutely right when you say that um, that management of keys is the big deal. I mean, it's not uh, it's you know with security that's the big deal. What do you do with your keys? You can generate them easily, but you know how are you going to keep them? And do you keep them with another key? And do you keep that key with another key? And you know, is it just a? I mean, that's a huge problem. Right. One one of the one of the coolest. Um, technologies to come out of the crypto API is the data protection API, which renders keys from the credentials of the operating system, either your user credentials or your machine credentials. And it's great, but it it doesn't move off the the machine because it's tied to that machine or that user. That's good for a lot of things, but obviously not in a, in a, you know, a network communications topography. Well, and for the machine, you need to provide entropy to make it more secure because that's true. That's less secure than the individual user. Right. So, so right. what are what are some of the things that are being done in 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 the world of security with key management? Well, so so I, there are some large infrastructure third party systems that try to talk about key management and and um, there's a number of standards out there uh, again you know what is it uh, there's the kiss standard and that is really the acronym KRMS and those standards are all around the process of registering keys and managing keys and Verisign and RSA have uh, platform implementations for key management but they're extremely expensive so yeah. it's prohibitive for most companies so some folks that I've talked to have actually I mean most of them are implementing their own key management scenarios, which means that 
the plumbing of the of the web services that you're, I mean, whatever the platform is that you're developing on needs to be extensible so that you can actually hook into the process of looking up keys and managing keys. Because, for example, if I wanted to have you have callers identify themselves with a private key, then I would need to store a list of public keys on the server side that would identify who are allowed to call. And, for example, with the WSI toolkit, so uh, Web Services Enhancements 2.0 today, that would be stored in potentially a policy file, uh, Mm -hmm. and that would automatically validate the XML for me and reject it if that wasn't in the list. But, of course, that's a hard-coded XML file, which is not dynamic. So I would probably need to then programmatically override that, which you can, and go through my list of keys in whatever certificate store I want to verify against. So it's completely possible to do um, on your own. It's just that, obviously, everybody wants it to already be done, and yet they don't have the money to pay for what's already been done. Yeah, on the enterprise level. And of course, all these different hardware platforms have their own implementations of how to store things, different operating systems as well. Windows has protected storage, right? right. And, uh, you know, what is the equivalent on, on a BEA, BEA server? You know? Oh, for the keys? Well, I'm just saying as a, a not not particularly that question is rhetorical, you know, just what, right. there are different solutions for different platforms. Right, right. And, and so that's public-private key, I mean, and then if we go to token issuance, it actually gets to be a better story, right? Because now it's dynamically retrieved, has an expiry, and what happens is, uh, let's say I am going to hit your web service, Carl, and let's say, Richard, you're the token issuer, so I first ping Carl and I say, well, what is your policy? What kind of token do I have to send you? Mm -hmm. And you send me back your policy that says I have to get a token from Richard. So I go to Richard and I say, can, can I have a token, pretty please, right? And you get me a token that gives me my credentials, which means I probably already registered with you, so you know who I am. And then I'm going to actually uh, send, use that token to sign my message, possibly encrypt, and send to you. Um, I'm probably actually going to use your public key to encrypt, so I've already retrieved that as well. And I'm going to send you the message, Carl, and then you're going to take that message and possibly ping Richard and say, is this still a valid token, right? Mm-hmm. So Richard ends up being this hub and spoke in a way. That's where he likes to be. Yeah, that's a happy place for me. But, you (laughs) know, (laughs) I get back to this idea. It it makes a lot of sense in sort of the SSL key models that we have these public servers that handle all these keys. But when you start talking about short duration tokens or even talking in web services in general, it makes a lot of sense that you run your own key services and don't pay for these extra fees. It really comes back to this idea that web services aren't public that you're not really going to have third-party people hitting your web services. I'm going to know who you are before you come to me. Of course, you have it's a contract always second party. with a partner. And so by that, by that sense, I don't need this third-party validation, this VeriSign validation of keys for trust. I've already talked to you. I know who you are. I've pointed you at my key server. And so I'm comfortable and you're comfortable with the quality of the keys in that form. So, so if you take that one step further, though, um, there's there's a new concept that um, they're already starting to publicly discuss, which means I guess I can too, is uh, the InfoCard framework, which is um, going to be, of course, part of the future of Indigo, and that is um, going to allow us to talk to devices that contain your identities. Mm. So like a smart card or 
a mass storage device or, you know, dongle or something that actually has your credentials on it, and you can carry it with you to different machines, and it'll automatically be picked up and used as a credential. I was going to bring up the dongle idea, but it, and I thought, well, maybe not, because dongles seem to me to be something that's tied to a particular user and isn't quite automatable, is it? I'm... Well, but this would assume that, you know, you're using some sort of application, uh, maybe even around an enterprise. Mm. And within that enterprise, if you go to a different machine, you need to prove who you are to sign in and use true. the application, which might hit some remote service, right? True, true. So there's all kinds of scenarios you could build around that. Um, and, you know, you could include dongles that actually have thumbprint readers that verify that, mm. you know, you're the right person putting the dongle in. I mean, it can go that far, right? True. So that idea of the transportable identity um, or the portable identity is pretty cool. It's very cool. But these yeah. are issues we've been addressing for some time in sure. the enterprise space. What's interesting to me is this idea that you're going to bring that capability to the web services space. Right, that it'll actually go down that that far. Everything starts with your authentication on that key, right. and then that travels all the way through the process. Right, and cool. you know you have to reduce the the. I mean, private keys are just not portable at all. Right. And never mind the fact that, you know, securing them becomes an issue, too. Some of these dongles are, are maintaining that they will, you know, be untouchable in terms of accessing where the key is stored and tampering. So, uh, you know, the, the mechanism of that, obviously, I, I can't get into right now. But Yeah, they actually give you a little electric shock if your thumbprint yeah, doesn't exactly. match up. So yeah. <laughs> Your hair starts standing up, and they're like, oh, you tried to use my dongle, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> You'll pull it out of the USB yeah. adapter. Ah! It's like... Like Pinocchio, only only not. Forms development should definitely check out Telerik RAD RAD Control Suite, the UI essentials for rapid ASP.NET development. Online at www.telerik.com, T E L E R I K.com. They're a new sponsor, and uh, we've taken their tools for a test drive here, and we like what we see. This indispensable collection of components cover the major aspects of most web applications. From the CMS backbone and the WYSIWYG editor to navigation, content rotation, and charting. Telerik has just released version Q1 2005 of the RAD control suite, which features new major versions of their tree view, panel bar, and charting components. The company has been prominent for frequent releases, so you can expect something new every month. RAD Controls is not merely a collection of ordinary controls, but rather a value set of products, many of which are market leaders in their respective categories. They've received a number of industry awards and recognitions. 
Moreover, as of June 2004, a modified version of their flagship control, the HTML content editor called RAD Editor, has been made available by Microsoft as a replacement of the default HTML placeholder in Microsoft Content Management Server 2002. All the individual controls can also be purchased separately. If you only need navigation components, for example, you can opt in for the subset called RAD Navigation Suite. A subscription option is also available, which entitles you to new products and free updates for one year. So you should definitely check them out. Telerik RAD Control Suite Q1 2005 for ASP.NET at www.telerik.com. software, the green thing that went into the uh, parallel port. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those were hilarious. Well, you know, my wife is still using dongles because she's in the CAD CAM space, right? Yeah. That right. software is very expensive, and they're they use they're now using USB dongles that light right. up, but right. she still has some of the old parallel ones floating around. Right, right. But it also turns out that there's some of the e- that's some of the easiest software to fake out, you know, just it, no matter what. When you have software that's looking at a particular address for a particular value, it's very easy to crack. Yeah, they've gotten smarter. I mean, they they, they actually are storing encryption keys that decrypt chunks of code and mm. and things like that. It's it's quite insane that the efforts that people are going to try and protect software that way. Not that I agree with it, but right. you know, they're doing everything they can. Yep. Well, so 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 another thing about the whole uh, idea of key management, though, is that if you think about the private key, which is obviously the strongest form of protection, if mm-hmm. you're using that to sign your messages and so on, mm-hmm. um, they uh, the problem is, of course, protecting it. It's not just management, but also, you know, where do I put that? And kind of a funny story when I was doing a talk once. You know, I, I've done a lot of presentations on WSE and. And, and going through the whole process of, you know, private key signature, because you need to understand that before you can talk about why we need to move to token issuance, um, just so people see the difference between, you know, private key signature and then, well, maybe I use a private key once to call the token issuer, and then, of course, they send me back a, a lighter weight symmetric key that I can use to communicate with the web service um, for a period of time, and that reduces the bloat of the messages going back and forth repeatedly, right? Yeah. So, so the private key then has to be protected. So I always used to say in my presentation, well, you know, that key's got to go in a dungeon somewhere, you know, under a locked door mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, like uh, uh, one of those dogs with two heads, right? Or <laughs> Fluffy. And, yeah. Exactly. And so I said that in one of my talks, and then somebody yells out, but didn't a couple of kids get past him? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> like, oh yeah, good point. Yeah. I guess I better use the fire breathing dragon example then. <laughs> so. Play a little recorded music. He falls fast asleep. <laughs> right. Well, what else? What else? I mean, it's been a while since we talked about Wissy and the state of it, and uh, and the promise of Indigo. So, so what's uh, what's new? So. So WYSI 2.0 is on Service Pack 3, and I think everybody's pretty happy with that in terms of um, the 2003 stack is functioning very nicely with WS Security, for example. I mean, that's the primary set of standards that 
everybody absolutely needed to get past the SSL issue, um, the fact that we, we needed more security around our messaging. So that's working. And in terms of other platforms interoperating with that, today uh, you can do most of what you need to do with WS Security. Uh, what you'll find interesting is that different platforms obviously have the different way to implement uh, WS Star, and some of them don't default the same way as .NET does, for example, right? So, so is that an issue? No, as long as you can override what you're sending back and forth between the systems. And so, you know, I think what we're going to find is that, you know, in future generations of some of the J2 platforms, a greater amount of extensibility will be built into the IDE level, where it's a little bit more, uh, not drag and drop, but you know what I mean, simplified in terms of how I implement these messages. Mm -hmm. Today, if you want to override that stuff, you have to go down into the real deep undercover J2EE modules to edit that. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy, and people still don't get web services, so they certainly aren't going to get that, right? Right. So I think you're going to see a new generation, I guess, of productivity tools for the Java side that make it extensible as well as, you know, meet all the standard requirements. And, I mean, again, just simple examples would be, oh, I don't send um, from BEA to .NET, I don't send a timestamp and addressing headers with the current version 8.1 workshop. So what do I do? Well, on the .NET side, I can overlook that I didn't receive one, but the default expects it, right? So I have to customize the code a bit. Um, and I'll be talking about that at TechHead, actually. I'm doing a talk on overriding the wizard-generated code, right? Oh, cool. So, um, so anyway, so WYSI 2.0 works really well with security. And again, all the standards, to some extent, even WS Trust Secure Conversation, which is our token issuance protocol, um, that's also implemented, but those aren't ratified yet. So we're still working towards that. And WYSI 3 will add MTOM. And it will also function in its current state today with uh, the 2005 stack. And, and what's so, MTOM? MTOM is the final, we hope, <laughs> I think, uh, standard for attachments. So we started with SOAP with attachments. Oh, with yeah, that. yeah, yeah. That's right. And, you know, that was a MIME-encoded format for passing attachments, but it didn't tie into the message. So the SOAP envelope right now, there's no way to refer automatically um, as part of the standard um, to a you know, uh, uh, another message part, if you will, right. that this is a parameter being passed. I need to receive an attachment. So you kind of hooked it together just trustingly. And um, and then that moved into Dime, which Dime just completely flopped, really. Yeah, I ne uh, never heard too much about Dime after it was announced. Yeah, they talked, well, it was in WYSI, though. And, in fact, WYSI doesn't have support for SWA, so we have to go to a third-party tool to interop there. But because the J2 stacks also support Dime, to do interop, most people were using Dime anyway, just because it was easier on the .NET side then. And since .NET folks were using Dime, if a J2 operation wanted to interop, then they would just select the Dime stack that they have. Um, and that made it easier. But it actually deviates from the MIMACOTA format of SWA, which is now back with M MTOM, and MTOM just adds a bunch of other infrastructure whereby we can include um, uh, SOAP message security around attachments, so mm -hmm. if you need to encrypt or whatnot, um, you're relating attachments to the message and so on. You know, I'm going to throw a question out of left field here, Do you, okay. and, and just, we'll ask you to th okay. just ask you to think about, uh, think about this, and you know, the, the big problem with email right now is is the the ability for unscrupulous email senders to you know fake identities and and be anonymous and just start sending messages to people? Do you think that once all of this web service technology gets worked out, that 
that it actually might uh, provide a nice little platform for for an alternative to to SMTP and POP3? That's a very interesting question. And definitely Uh, out of left field. Yeah, definitely out of left field. Well, I mean, you know, if you think about email, it's asynchronous messaging. So it's one-way messages from a web service perspective. Completely anonymous. I mean, you know, it can be. Right. Um, But I suppose you could only pick up the messages that dropped in that were... If you're talking about identities and whether or not you trust who sent them, well, that's precisely it. See, yeah. That's the thing. You'd have to. I mean, you can kind of do that today with email in the sense that we can use keys, right? We can sign our messages and we can receive messages from people who sign their messages, and we could only open those that are signed that we've accepted their signature as part of our private key store, if you will, right? Our public key store. Um, but it does so, become completely so I mean, impractical. We kind of have that today. So the problem still becomes filtering through and making sure that you have a key for everybody you trust. Well, and it's also impractical. I mean, you, 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 email is great because it's easy and everybody can do it. And that's also why it, it's very insecure. Um, you know, so obviously there need, there have to be standards that are compelling enough for people that, uh, to, to to have to start running this separate network. Well, PGP keys have been free for a long time. We could all sit down and set up our PGP keys and then set our outlook to say, if it doesn't go to key, I don't want it. Well, you're not going to get... But then you know. you're not going to get other email. How is this really any different than, I mean... Okay, so I Perhaps guess there's not. two aspects of this. One is providing a list of people you trust to send you emails and it's from that address only and the rest are spam. And then the second is preventing someone from spoofing that they were you, meaning that they somehow made it look like it came from you. And I don't know how that's working out. Okay. Well, okay. Yeah, that was out of left field. What made me think of that was um, dime, which sounds like mime. And you talked about message parts. And I was thinking, you know, email has, the email industry has gone through all this kind of trying to standardize message parts with mime and, and all this other kind of thing. And well, then thinking yeah. about all the be- the infrastructure of security through port 80, you know, sounds, uh, sounds like it could actually have except legs that, there. Except that um, MTOM mime, okay, so it's following the standard mime, but the yeah. first part in the message is the SOAP envelope. So... I don't know that, I mean, you'd, you'd have to find another way to apply some of the security around message parts for email because you probably wouldn't be sending a SOAP envelope unless we change the way email is picked up. I mean, that would be sure. a different story altogether. All right. Well, anyway, back to uh, back to web services, back <laughs> yeah. to reality. Actually, let's jump. Reality. Before we jump into web services, I just wanted to talk about since we last talked to you, and if, actually this is the first time I've done a show with you, Michelle, but... You know, you and I talk occasionally anyway. Tell me about the International Association of Software Architects. This, this ah, is new for you, isn't it? Yeah, I, I noticed I had an opening in my schedule on Sundays for about an hour, and <laughs> I was relaxing, mm. and I thought, well, what am I doing that for when I could add more work to my schedule? Yeah, that's what I thought when I heard you'd gotten <laughs> on board. And you're a director as there, well. You, know? so, um, you couldn't just join and be a member. You had to get on the council. <laughs> well, so that's kind of related to Interop in a way, because what happened is while I was doing um, pulling together that Interop event that we did with all the people I mentioned earlier, um, there was another event going on in Austin with Ted Neward and, and others. Um, and 
Paul Price was organizing that in Austin, and he's the president of ISA, which is International Association of Software Architects. So he's actually been working really hard on this for several years, and it's finally to a point where he's full-time on it, and it's a it's a nonprofit organization that's really uh, a professional organization for architects. So the intention, of course, to be you know, bringing uh, content to architects all over and, uh, you know, special engagements, uh, newsletter, articles, reference material, education. There's a working group going on that, that talk, talking right now about the taxonomy of, of architecture where they're trying to pull that together. And, you know, they've got some fellows like Grady Booch and, um, and uh, Scott Ambler and Jan Popkin, actually. Uh, so, so it's pretty interesting. Hmm. I think it's coming together very nicely. Um, my role was to help with events because it started out with Interop City, which is uh, not actually an event that we take on a roadshow per se, but what we've been doing is going and it started out with his event in Austin, which was a bunch of user groups got together, the Java leaders, the .NET leaders, and other related groups like you know, uh, OMG groups and XML and so on, and they got together and they put together this event and they flew in the speakers and they did a bunch of interop stuff. And so, like I said, Ted Neward was there, so he's the one that I know the best out of that list. Mm. And um, and they turned this into a tour in the sense that you know ISA got sponsorships so that they could help fund making it possible for other user groups to come together and do it as well. And you know it has to be under a neutral umbrella for all sides to want to participate, and I think in particular in the Java community, I mean, you know, it's just they're not going to go to a Microsoft office yeah. for an event, and at the end of the day, it shouldn't, we don't want things like that to get in the way, so it has to be neutral, so ISA represents that neutral umbrella. And that we sounds get great. To yeah, so so it's cool. It's like we call the user groups up ahead of time and, and say, hey, you know, we heard you want to do this event, and or some of them haven't heard about it yet, so we tell them, hey, did you know that we're helping user groups do this event? <laughs> and if they're interested, then we pull them together. And some groups don't want to bite, you know, like because they have their own organizations and plans, but there's usually to choose from up to 30 groups in an area. So even if there's 10 groups participating, it's something. And it's cool because they get to interop with each other, human interop too, human right? Interop. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's incredibly important for developers to learn something of, quote-unquote, the other side, um, other platforms. You mean and social skills or? No. <laughs> well, there's that too. You part your hair on the other side once in a while, you know? <laughs> well, and, and you have done this. I mean, you're, you're a regional director. You're also a BEA uh, technical, technical director, right. yeah. Which is sort well, of the equivalent thing. I background. I told you, enough to be dangerous, yeah. right? Um, so I, uh, you know, I, I think that that's helped me in my career, you know, just having had that exposure and, and go through the process of having to actually get access working on my machine and all the pain that went with that. No pain, no gain, right? Right. So, uh, but, you know, I think it's important for developers to expand their knowledge of other platforms so that they can actually have a diverse um I think about people that you know that are interesting to you in the world even, right? Who who are people that you talk to that are interesting to talk to? Usually they're people that are well-traveled, um, have some understanding generally of culture and world, you know, the world around us. And, and what kind of people become interested in that? Well, usually if they've been exposed at a very young age, right, then they get opportunities. Otherwise, it's like a, a slow growth process, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. So same thing goes for you know, our industry, it's like, you know, aren't people more interesting when they've seen other things? Absolutely. 
more perspective. Platforms. They have perspective, exactly. I'd make the point that interoperability, uh, especially between platforms, only becomes relevant when you start understanding it. The other platforms build good software too. Right. They do. You know, BEA is perfectly capable to building excellent software. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you can't spend all your time trying to convert people. Um, I think right. it's more about the right tool for the right job. And also, it's not just about that. It's about existing investment and leveraging that, right? So sure. companies that already have Java developers are not going to just convert to Microsoft and vice versa. Right. However, they may need to integrate, especially if there's any sort of company merge or, um, you know, software that they acquire yeah. that happens to be on a different platform and, you know, now, now all of a sudden we're playing a new game. So obviously web services facilitate the interop quite nicely, but another issue too is that sometimes we need direct interop. We need to directly call an Oracle database from .NET um, and include it in transactions and so on. So we can do that type of interop too, which is more like uh, RPC. Yeah. Well, the, the mom RPC approach, Oracle, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, let me get let me uh, let me get back to uh, this web service stuff. Uh, I want to, you obviously talk to a lot of companies, you talk to a lot of CIOs and you know what they're doing, you know what they're using. And it's just so easy to use HTTPS, you know, with a web service to, to have uh, a secure um, channel to, to, uh, to get data back and forth. What do you, you know, do you find that most people just fall into that easy uh, trap and is it a trap? And, what are the issues there? I mean, why why would you spend the extra time to, uh, you know, to to get WYSI going when you could just use HTTPS? So interestingly, I think that the playing field here is changing more recently than before. So I'd say a year ago, most people I talked to would say SSL is enough. Yeah, I don't need to bother with the rest. Now that the platform tools have evolved to where it's easier to implement WS security, they are now changing their tune and saying, you know what, I do need message level security. So the first thing is why the need, right? So SSL encrypts point to point, and it also can provide some sort of authentication of, of the sender and so forth. And, and you know, there's a key exchange that goes on there. And and it's, it's acceptable if you know who the endpoint is and that it's not going to go through any other hops. And, a good point. You know, you don't always know that because you might actually be sending messages through an outbound proxy that hides where the message originally came from in terms of internal application tier. Um, or it could be that uh, you're going through an XML firewall at the endpoint side, which is the ultimate receiver. And at that point, they're going to parse and they're going to decrypt, you know, the message and then pass it along, which means it's open now within that system. Now, what if it needs to go through a routing process to another company? Then we're actually not only crossing a machine boundary potentially open, but maybe even, you know, a company boundary. So you just don't know. And in fact, I think there's other things that make it easier to work with WS security where, you know, you can pick which parts of the message you want to encrypt. So it doesn't have to be the whole message. It can be encrypt this part, um, the body and these headers for this particular endpoint. But you know what? I want to pass a special header to the intermediary, and I'm going to encrypt it for that endpoint. I mean, that gets a little bit sophisticated right. beyond what most people are doing today, but the flexibility there exists. Well, you don't need to encrypt everything. You know, some things right. are public information, names right. and addresses and stuff like that, but... 
Yeah. And, and there's a performance uh, hit or a benefit? So performance is the number one question that people ask, and most skeptics will will sit on web services as a performance lag as their way out of not bothering. And I think that the right answer is, of course, like with anything we do, right, security adds overhead, and it's a trade-off. So... Yes, you're going to have a bigger, a, a more bloated message. If you use private key, it's worse than if you use a, an issued token. So obviously, token issuance can be a, a better, a more desirable result um, with the claims that expire and all that good stuff. And you're going to make that trade-off, but you're going to have to benchmark with the data that you're sending typically between the systems. So if you're sending several gigabytes of attachment uploads, then you know I'd. I'd I'm not saying you can't do that with web services, but you need to look at, you know, your application and and decide what's the right model for distributing that information. Yeah. But this is really it's almost doing, a non-sequitur, isn't it? What's that? It's a non-sequitur. You're complaining <laughs> about performance around security. It's like you don't have security because you wanted your app to run fast. Right, right. It's the same reason you have a door on your house. Right. You want, and then you put a lock on that door, and right. maybe a second lock on the door. You don't put these on because you need you need to get through that door quickly. You need to put those things on because you need to protect that door. Mm-hmm. Well, now you mentioned an XML firewall. Is that? I imagine that is just uh, something that's looking at the stream and and looking at the actual XML and validating it. Is that right? Yeah, these are appliances that speed up the processing of the security headers. So if you offload that to an appliance level, then you're going to have much better performance than if you do it on a software device. But those are very expensive today. Interesting. Large organizations, so you have to look at the level of organization where you're dealing with with all of these things. Yeah. Large organizations can, can afford that, and they require it. Brian Kuhn, who's a good friend of ours and uh, a, a .NET Rocks fan from the very beginning, he uh, asks from the chat room, Michelle, what do you see as the first killer app for web services that will make them a household name, if they're not already a household name? Are web services as a technological being held back by the shakedown of competing standards that has been happening over the last few years? I don't think they're held back from competing standards. I think that... It's a natural progression. I mean, look at what happened when we first had object orientation. Didn't people resist it? Talking about, you know, speed and, you know, they the still do. Yeah, they still do. Right. Yeah. And, and then you take that to component-oriented design, right? And then you take that to service-oriented design. And then you ta- take that to web services exposing services in a service-oriented environment. You know, what we're doing is we're, we're repeating some of the same philosophies over and over again for reuse models, only at a grander scale. And, you know, it takes time to get used to the idea because now with the messaging between companies, for example, I mean, the whole security around that was the number one concern. Um, it, it, industries are not going to overnight suddenly share data. I mean, that was the number one problem I had sure. in the insurance industry when I worked um, at ConfirmNet. We had a, a system that needed data out of agency management systems to do what we did, which is receive XML, generate PDFs, and send them, you know, delivery by fax, U.S. mail, or email. Yeah, it, and it all had starts to be real intent. time, and it had to be timely, and we had peak periods, and we had to manage that load, and so there was that issue to it. But then the bigger issue was, how do we get the darn data? Yeah. 
because without the data, we were nothing, right? So, so the trust in an industry is incredibly sacred, and, and they look at that data as proprietary, even though it's not necessarily anything that a customer would care was lying on a paper on the street. It's more like a customer list that they don't want getting out and stuff like that. Yeah, right. So Together in large quantities. I'm sort of digressing, I guess, into a, a personal story, but really, I think the standards, you know, if you think about it, how long has WS Security really been ratified? Yeah, What's not very long. Is we're, see- we're hearing about the standards long before they're actually ratified, so it makes it look like the adoption is slow when mm. really they're not really ready to be adopted until the early adopters that are gung-ho try it out on WYSI 3 and, you know, early implementations. See what rises to the top. And Exactly, and then platforms have to make it easy, right? So as long as we're... I might find it fun to go in and in the plumbing and figure out how do I override this so that I can receive a message from, you know, Axis, or how do I change the algorithm for encryption so that I can call that Axis service because the the defaults are different with .NET. So, you know, I might find that fun, except for the day before an event when it's not working. Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, but but most people, you know, are just not going to adopt for productivity reasons, right, until that's a little bit more encapsulated. So then you look at something like Indigo where, you know, I've already looked at a a service where I can create a service endpoint and I can, you know, put in the um, configuration file that my 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 whatever my bindings are and and also requirements for policy like I need you to sign the message this is what I need you to type a token I need you to send these are the claims I expect I can put all that in an XML file and then basically hit that endpoint from a client that also has a similar XML file that says okay I'm going to pass this type of token and then all of the plumbing does the work and it actually does a whole number of exchanges in fact without writing very much code maybe 10 lines of code you can get an indigo client calling a service which all it looks like to you is you're calling the service through the proxy like hello world and underneath the plumbing it's actually first making a mex call a, 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 a a WS uh, message, uh, metadata exchange call, right, um, to get the policy from the first service, which says go to the second service where the token's issued. So now i got to go there and get its policy, and it says, oh, well, I need you to pass me an info card. And so then I go and I get my info card off the dongle, and then I hit the, um, you know, the token issuer and pass it the, the info card information and get the credential back that I was looking for, which is a SAML token, and then I pass the SAML token to the service that I originally was trying to call, and all of that's done under the plumbing. Yeah, doing that kind of stuff manually is analogous to going to the DMV, you know, <laughs> you know, trying to so register you your car. You tell you no, come back later. Yeah, uh, you yeah. don't have, have the right. Book. Oh no, go get your checkbook. I need you to pay. You don't have the right documentation here. Start but again. I waited in line for two hours. Yeah. You, you know, it's funny. This has happened at every one of those tiers you mentioned earlier when object orientation first got a hold. How many languages did we spit out? A dozen. And a bunch of them died, most of them died, and a few of the big ones, like C++ and so forth, continued on. And same thing in component development and so forth. This is nothing new. We're going through the same process of coming up with best ideas, trying them out, and then picking the winners and moving ahead. And as far as the killer app, uh, you know, I, I sort of see this as plumbing code. You don't really see a killer app of plumbing code. Like, a, you wouldn't see a killer app of copper pipe, you know? Yeah, or killer a killer well, app of TCP/IP. I think killer app would be would be that 
that we were able to um, single sign-on from any application and get these tokens from a central location that represented us so that anytime I go to a website, anytime I use an application, I don't have to remember one single damn login. Yeah. The login <laughs> on my machine is the know, login that works that, everywhere. That's a killer app that, I mean, it's never going to happen because there's never going to be a single unification of a token issuer for every single application. I mean, that yeah. would be Big Brother, right? Not in so, a democracy, right? Yeah, it's not going to happen. But... Um, you know, I think killer app would be crossing over industry boundaries where, you know, um, where I guess, you know, you could somehow uh, have data completely accessible across, say, in the insurance industry, an example would be carriers, agencies, and vendors. Yeah. Like, have it actually be that they adopted it to the point where they actually each implement a standard interface that is the way we message between these types of partners. And then all of them look the same, so a single message goes to all of, you know, the same the, the same endpoint to grab a policy, for example. Um, I mean, that would be great. So, Okay, another question from the chat room from Gary DeRoche, and he asks, I've heard WSE 3.0 will be wire compatible with Indigo, but WSE 2.0 will not. How is this possible? Is WSE 2.0 using proprietary or non-finalized protocols? Um, it, it's, it's not about the... Well, so, okay, WSI 2.0 implements WS security based on the standard as it is today. But Indigo, I'm trying to think how I can describe this because, I mean, you know, the wire compatibility really has to do with, um, God, uh, I've only been on one call with this, so it's kind of hard to remember. Wire compatible, I don't know. I don't. I, I think. I think it's this is a little a, bit out of my league. Probably, it's got to be a minimum requirements issue. That that WSE two is. Because I mean, what's wire compatible? It. I mean, you're yeah. you're gonna implements you're gonna, all the features of the protocol. That's all, or, or of the particular version of the well, protocol. Well, I mean, messages. So, in terms of messages going live, right? And maybe you can edit this or whatever. So, sure. I've had to think this through, but, but. So so let's say WSI 3.0 implemented on 2005, and I want to send a, uh, a message that has WS security around it. That will work against an Indico endpoint. Ah, uh, yes. The serialization will be compatible, but it still won't have all of the stuff that's in Indigo. Right. See, that's my understanding. Yeah, of that's, it. What, that's what he means, wire. Yeah. Compatible. So yeah. most likely we're so, going to be able to. So 2.0 just doesn't have all of that finalized. I mean, 2.0 is certainly ahead of its other competitors in terms of implementing WS security, but it's not um, complete. Right. So the point is that, that while it may not be wire compatible off the out of the shelf, you're going to be able to turn Indigo down to be compatible with WSE2 if you want. It's just going to be harder to do. It's not a simple thing to get under the plumbing inside of uh, Indigo. I know all that's going to be exposed, and you're going to be able to set the switches. is an issue, though, I guess, for people that are early adopters and right. using WSI 2 and then wondering, well, how do I you know, deploy that when I'm now on 2005, which you can, right? You just have to have uh, the runtime bits for 
2003 as well. But it was so. also made very clear, though, with WSI 2.0 that this is, you know... It's an early adoption. It's an early adoption thing. Yeah. It, it, it's it's a temporary stopgap until we hit Indigo. Yeah, expect to be beaten. It be a complaint. I mean, it actually kind of frustrates me when people get upset about it because right. the tool's being provided to us so that we can get a head start and understand these standards, get our arms around them, and actually use them. But, you know, it's sort of like you know, buyer beware, right? If right. if you're going to use it, then be prepared that this is not part of the platform. What they want is they want Microsoft to be able to stop time and right. and produce the solution and then hit the, okay, you can move on with the time, time-space uh, continuum. Yeah, first version is the complete specification, yeah. even though that specification has been written when the first version ships. That's right. Well, Michelle, we're getting to the end of the uh, end of the time limit allowed here for a Donnie Rock show in the Somebody's year 2005. Gotta a, somebody's got to get into an airplane, I think. That's right. And i uh, got a couple questions for you. First one is, what's the coolest thing you've downloaded lately? My brother's CD. Oh, no. <laughs> Everybody wants to self-promote here. There you know? we go. Nobody's just like, I downloaded this really cool tool. Now, I mean, I've actually listened to your brother's music, and I quite like it. Some yeah, it, it is excellent. good. Evildoers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do they have a website? They do. Yeah. Evildoersmusic.net. Awesome. It is good stuff. I wasn't trying to sell, though. No, I know. (laughs) I just don't download a lot. Well, it's just like any time we ask a a Microsoft employee, you know, what's the coolest thing you downloaded lately? They're like, oh, you know, the thing that they're working on. Right. Right. Microsoft Search. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Forefront of your mind, right? Yeah. 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 We're trying to produce a music video for them, so I'm just, uh, it's in my mind, right? Excellent. Well, that's a perfectly valid day. And, of course, you know, Michelle, it wouldn't be a, a show with you if we didn't ask you if you had any good jokes. I mean, you oh, you were a bartender. You've heard them all. You, <laughs> and, and and perhaps some of the funniest jokes I've heard from you. Okay. Um, don't hold back, man. Don't hold back. No, don't resist. Are going to bleep if it's bad? Of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. You know, it's like you can take the girl out of Toronto, but you can't take the Toronto out of Toronto. <laughs> okay, uh, let's see. Um, okay, I have a medical joke, of course. There okay. you go. Let's. Okay. Uh, wait, Richard. Yeah. Did the shouldn't be bleeping you one? Did I already tell that? So I have one. There's an administrator of the hospital is actually um, showing, they have a new benefactor who's donated millions of dollars to the hospital. So they're showing this woman, really, you know, old, kind of prissy, you know, elegant lady mm-hmm. uh, around the facility, right? You know, all the different areas in the hospital, emergency rooms, this and that. And they walk by this one patient's room and and she she looks over and she sees this guy masturbating. And the administrator right away says, I'm sorry you had to see that. You know, actually, this patient has a, a very serious condition where his his balls fill with semen um, so fast that he actually has to masturbate every hour just to relieve himself of the pe- pressure. And so uh, she just sort of recovers, and they continue with the tour, and they're looking around, and they go to the next floor and this and that, and, and end up walking by this other room, and they see this nurse giving a patient a blowjob. <laughs> and she Jeez. just looks at him in horror and she says, oh, I'm so sorry, madame, I, I'm sorry that you had to see that. But actually, if you could believe it, this guy has the same condition as the other gentleman we saw back then, except he has better insurance. <laughs> <laughs> so of course, my husband told me that joke. He's a physician, right? That's great. Yeah. 
Well, any last minute <laughs> following that? Any last minute words of wisdom before I think we? It's uh... pretty hard to follow that with anything, isn't it? It's great though. Yeah. Any last minute words of wisdom you want to uh, impart? Uh, tell people about what's coming up at TechEd if they'll have time to listen to this and get to your uh, talk. What are you oh, doing I mean, there? I definitely um, come to all my talks at TechEd. Definitely, you know. yeah. <laughs> um, no, actually, I think probably it'd be really for those interested in web services and interop. I think uh, Simon Guest is doing a talk on interop. I'm doing a Wizzy 2.0 talk beyond the wizards, and certainly there's going to be plenty of Indigo talks that. And, and I think some labs as well that you could go to that would sort of get you sort of poised for the future because it couldn't get more elegant than the way the Indigo stack is looking today. And I think yeah. I think that's really pretty cool. And, you know, when I finish my book on Indigo, maybe you can buy it. Excellent. <laughs> Fantastic. When, when do you think that's going to be? Well, that's what the publisher asks me. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometime this year. <laughs> Well, Michelle, we'll, ke- we'll catch up with you at TechEd. And in the meantime, okay. thanks a lot for coming on the show. All right. Thanks, Carl. And uh, we'll see you next time. And uh, for myself, Richard Campbell, Jeff Maciolik in the sound room, Michelle LaRue Bustamante out there in Southern California, thanks for listening to .NET Rocks. Have a great week. <laughs>